Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 118 being recorded on Tuesday, February 27th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, you have a uh, a big webinar coming up this week that uh, I think listeners would love to hear about. The uh, Also, it's live video, so listeners will actually get to see you. So that's exciting. I know, I know. Uh, I I feel like I do have a face for podcasts, so that you know is not necessarily a good thing. Um, but I'm a little disheveled right now. I've sort of torn apart my office to set up a little uh, uh, video setup because I'm doing the, uh, a webinar on artificial intelligence in commerce uh, with EpiServer, and I'm doing it on Thursday morning. And the reason we're mentioning it on the show is because the last big webinar that they did uh, had this author I really like, and I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't exactly know how to pronounce his name, but I think it's Nir Eyal, and he, he wrote this great book called Hooked, um, which is a lot about uh, how people form habits, and, and uh, he's, he's a, a super interesting cognitive psychologist. But he did the last webinar, and I'm desperate to get better attendance than him. So I, I think I just passed him in pre-registration. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll bring it home on Thursday morning for the Jason and Scott show. Awesome. We're counting on you. Uh, also, it's it's starting to be season here of trade shows. And we have, I think, three or four where we're going to be there together, which is pretty exciting. Uh, going on right now, and neither of us were able to attend, is ETL West. So bummer on that one. Yeah, but, but shout out are... to everyone enjoying the good weather in Palm Springs. Yeah, yeah, can't can't blame you for going to that one. Um, so the ones we're going to be at together, March 12th to 14th in your hometown of Chicago, we're going to be at the Path to Purchase Summit. Uh, and then we'll be at Shop Talk in Las Vegas and then NPD Idea in Austin. Uh, Shop Talk is March 18th to 21st and NPD Idea is May 15th to 17th. Exactly. So I'm, I'm speaking at good. Shop Talk and NPD, but I'm particularly looking forward to Path to Purchase because I'm just going to be in the audience heckling you. Yeah, yeah, I look forward to your heckling. Uh, it'll be funny. Usually when we do that, no one realizes who you are, and it's super awkward, so it's always yeah. good. Even when they know who <laughs> I am, it's generally super awkward. <laughs> it's like an episode of The Office, but like stretched out and more painful. Um, so since we're hitting the trade show circuit, and when we do that, we do have a lot of guests lined up. We're going to – this will be uh, – we missed last week due to me. I was on a little bit of a holiday. So this week we're going to catch up on news, and then there will be a little bit of a news coverage drought. So we need to kind of knock this one out. And, of course, when it comes to news, it wouldn't be a Jason Scott show without <laughs> – Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. So the big news today, it's been kind of timely that we were going to do the podcast today, which is good. We appreciate Amazon uh, working this out for us. They announced one of their biggest acquisitions ever. They are spending a billion dollars to acquire Ring. Um, 
Rings are cool. Uh, as an entrepreneur, I think Rings kind of classic case study there uh, for other entrepreneurs. Uh, so the CEO, the founder, went on Shark Tank and was rejected by all the sharks. Uh, they thought it was a terrible idea. Uh, admittedly, the name wasn't that good. It was called Doorbot. Um, and they just kind of were like, you know, we can't see how or why anyone would use this thing. Um, so it just goes to show you that sometimes uh, when all these experts and gurus reject you, that you need to just kind of hang in there. Um, then they caught the eye of Richard Branson, and he invested something like $38 million. I guess he really saw use for the product. Uh, Amazon was an investor through the Alexa fund, and they raised a considerable amount of VC. Um, rumors were that they were out raising capital at kind of what's called a unicorn valuation or north of a billion dollars. And Amazon has picked them up for a billion bucks. Uh, what do you think about the news, Jason? Yeah, uh, a I uh, really appreciative of uh, Amazon getting all their news in before our our uh, go on air deadline. I think that's always very considerate of Jeff, um, number one listener. Thanks again. Uh, and I think it's it it seems like it checks a lot of boxes for Amazon. I think uh, Amazon has has had a, a major push into devices and smart home. Obviously, they have you know this huge foothold with the. The Alexa, but you know they they bought that uh, camera company not long ago, um, and I I feel like just as a consumer product space, they've been particularly interested in that space. And then you add to that that this that Ring could be an integral part of giving Amazon delivery people and home service people access to the home. Like it, you know, it suddenly is synergistic with their supply chain and reverse logistics ambitions. Um, and so it seems like. Uh, it's pre- it's a pretty clever investment, and you know a lot of us were talking about after the big Whole Foods acquisition uh, that maybe we wouldn't see another big retailer acquisition, but that that you know didn't necessarily mean that Amazon wasn't going to continue to be aggressive. So to me, this is a- another great example of them uh, trying to you know build or own a consumer brand that has you know competitive differentiation in the marketplace. Yeah, and it really kind of throws the gauntlet down. If, if you kind of think about the other folks really active in this space, you have Apple, who's really playing catch up. They just kind of came out with their smart speaker, and as we discussed on the show, it's you know not not really clear that's going to be a big hit, uh, and it really doesn't do much more than be a speaker. Uh, and then you have Google, and Google is just kind of frantically also playing catch up. They acquired Nest, which gave them the thermostat, and they put DropCam into that. Uh, so that gave them a camera, and then they have the Google Home smart speaker. Um, and I think you pointed out to me that those things actually don't really work well together, which is kind of funny, you know, because they're all in the Google house of devices. Um, and then, you know, they there was uh, talk of Nest coming out with a Ring competitor. So, uh, you know, now Amazon has bought the number one doorbell device. Uh, Ring was working on a cool security camera, which I've tried the private label-ish kind of the Amazon Home um, camera, and it's not very good. So I'm, I'm hoping that the the new Ring camera will displace that, or or at least have a better offering in that category. So it's going to be pretty interesting, and you know I, I agree with you. It, it kind of checks a bunch of boxes for Amazon. So you know tying it into the 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 Alexa ecosystem will be great. Uh, it kind of helps with home automation and security, which is this huge area that no one's really conquered yet. Um, then you have the delivery, you know, and, and then, uh, another area I watch really closely that Amazon seems to be encroaching in more and more is home services. So, you know, imagine some kind of an Amazon either, either kind of marketplace for home services with like a, a cleaning service or Amazon actually does it themselves through employees. Um, you know, you could have all this tied together in, in one seamless experience. So, you know, you, you could have kind of the 
the Holy Grail experience would be you you order your groceries through uh, you know your Alexa wish list. Uh, they are delivered to you from Whole Foods, um, and then you you do all this while you're at work, and then you've authorized Ring to allow access to your house to certain folks, and maybe there's some you know. Maybe they hold up a QR code or some kind of authorization there with the Ring device that doesn't even require you to answer your phone and see who it is, uh, and they place the items in your house. Um, so you know, really kind of thinking through this user experience and connecting the dots in, in a really interesting way that is so far ahead of everyone else, it's it's getting a little scary, to be honest with you. Yeah, and you know, one one use case that I didn't immediately think of, but that you know I think is another big uh, synergy for Amazon – you know, most of these uh, cameras are inside your house, right? So inside your front door or in your your nursery or wherever the case is. The 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 primary ring camera is on your porch, and you know, of course, there's there's this huge problem in e-commerce of porch piracy, where where you know bad people are are coming to people's houses and stealing their packages, and the that happens frequently enough that it's a it's a major problem for some consumers that are afraid to buy stuff and have it delivered to their home. So it it literally is a limiting factor for Amazon. And so having a an army of these devices that, you know, have the potential to dissuade porch pirates, you know, is even another synergistic thing with Amazon. Yeah, you could even do some cool stuff with AI where um, a ring owner, I don't have one, they're telling me there's some neighborhood alert feature. And so you could almost see, you know, if there is a porch pirate out there, uh, you know, AI could detect it and then turn on all the ring cameras within a three mile radius and, and you know, yeah. send all the video to the, the police, you know, kind of a, a little scary there on the privacy side. But, you know, when you do think about these use cases, it's pretty interesting. Amazon has all the pieces to do something like that actually relatively easily. Right. So think about all the AI and the face mapping and everything inside of the ghost store, uh, you know, so they could easily apply those algorithms to detecting, hey, this package was picked up by someone that's not the owner. Uh, so it's really interesting to think about all these Lego blocks that they're putting together and all the infinite use cases they have. Absolutely. Cool. And another kind of uh, kind of more on the whimsical side, uh, as you know, they, Amazon narrowed down this big HQ2 search to 20 cities. Um, and it's really funny. They, they kind of went into an NDA mode where, you know, they kind of had this huge hoopla about what's going on. And then now all these folks are the states they're negotiating with are under NDA. So everyone's trying to read the tea leaves. And, uh, you know, I, I think some of the funnier ones that, you know, the th conspiracy theories, I guess I would call them, that are out there. Um, there's one that says that Amazon gave a clue that they're going to Austin. And if you remember that Super Bowl spot that you and I both kind of thought really won the Super Bowl, uh, you know, the, the it kicks off with the lady asking Alexa what the weather is in Austin. So a lot of people have kind of tied into that uh, as a clue. And then there's a couple other kind of, you know, Easter eggs in there that they're they're tying into. So there's country music that plays in the in the thing. That's a little bit of a stretch, um, but then evidently. Uh, Austin is has an affinity with peacocks, and at the end, Anthony Hopkins is sitting there feeding that peacock. So a lot of people have kind of used the Super Bowl ad as kind of saying, hmm, is Amazon sending us a subtle clue? Yeah. Now, um, most of those, a lot of people are from Austin, for the record, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, another one I thought was funny is uh, a lot of people were kind of saying, oh, they're going to um, – Los Angeles. And what, what happened is actually a local reporter here, uh, they were able to file an information act, uh, kind of a thing. And they got, uh, at least a cover letter for, for how the proposal was sent from a, a city in North Carolina. And it 
called it Project Golden. And so then a lot of people said they, they, there was more evidence that was found. Other other reporters kind of took this cue and they were able to file these Freedom of Information Act requests and get some information, uh, mostly cover letters. The rest was, was redacted. Um, so everyone thought, okay, it's called Project Golden. That's like the Golden State, which is Los Angeles um, or – yeah. Um, so then everyone but, – but what happened is the person that's just kind of gathering together the proposals, their last name is Golden. Yeah. <laughs> so, so so there's all this like – so it's really funny to watch all this kind of like you know hoopla around this HQ2. So even though it's in super quiet mode, in a, in a way it's actually causing more more uh, kind of you know yeah. strange things going on. Again, it's it's evilly brilliant PR and you know they, they got all these municipalities to you – know, drop their drawers and and demonstrate exactly, you know, how deep they're willing to do in terms of economic development incentives to get Amazon there. And, you know, whoever Amazon picks it for the HQ2, they, they know how much money's on the table from these other cities. And you can imagine they're going to use all that in negotiation when they're opening fulfillment centers or other pieces of infrastructure in those cities. Yeah. Uh, do you have a, a, a front runner in your mind? Um, for the longest time, I've thought Austin – because it, it for me it has a lot of the the elements they're looking for. Um, so so the way I think about this is Amazon's retail business from a people perspective is really well built out. So I, I think HQ two is going to be maybe five or ten percent what you and I would think of as the retail business, and the rest is going to be AWS. Um, so that's where you know that thing's growing like sixty percent year over year. Maybe you put some ad business there, but but still it's kind of a different footprint than the retail business. Um, so and and in the proposal they talk about it being largely engineering so i think it's going to be kind of these you know higher end cloud-based engineer types so that really made me think uh austin because you have three or four engineering schools right there um cost of living infrastructure all those things get checked and it's close to whole foods which you know i, I think it, you know if i'd spent 14 billion dollars being near that would be pretty nice win as well um but then the one thing that has swayed me is uh Scott Galloway has been making a, making a pretty compelling case for the D.C. area. So three of the 20 are in the D.C. area. Uh, Bezos just bought like the largest residence in the D.C. area. Um, and I think it was on the DL and then it leaked somehow. Yeah, I mean, he owns uh, the Washington Post, too. He owns the Washington Post. It's like a toy project. And, you know, there if you do think about the only thing I see that could cause any kind of existential crisis for Amazon, it's the government. And I do think, you know, having the influence by being there, getting some of those key uh, Virginia, Maryland folks in your pocket uh, is pretty interesting. So so I kind of see it as a race between those two. Austin, if, if they're kind of really leaning towards talent and they don't really worry about the government thing, I think Austin wins. And if it, they're if the government thing is kind of looming large with them, then I think the D.C. area makes a lot of sense. Yeah. No, I am. Um... I tend to lead towards the D.C. area as well. Like you if you sort of think of um, in many ways, like Amazon is a next generation Walmart, um, you know, Walmart's had to really invest in their lobbying and their in their government relations. And, um, you know, like the guy running the government relations program for Walmart is like Dan Bartlett, who is the was the press secretary for George Bush. And, uh, you know, there was a bunch of political news a couple weeks ago, like the number three person at the Department of Justice resigned um, and she resigned to take a VP job at Walmart. So like Walmart's building these this stable of like really credible um, Washington folks. And if that's important to Walmart, like, you know, odds are it, it already is or should be important to Amazon. And so, you know, 
the proximity makes some sense from there, just from a odds perspective. You got you got three sites, so that seems logical. The one thing that um, uh, makes me a little dubious of uh, uh, Professor Galloway's um, evaluation is he also throws in New York as the front runner, and his logic is because everyone wants to live in New York. And I um, I kind of called them out on Twitter. He he took the high road and didn't respond. But only people that live in New York want to live in New York. That's a little, it's a little bit of a reality bubble that New Yorkers have. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Newark is on there. That's like a, no way. That seems like a non-starter to me. Yeah. Yeah. You just can't get tech talent in some of those cities that they have. Um, and then you saw some interesting news around the ghost tour. Yeah. Uh, I think Jason Del Rey broke this on recode. Um, but it appears that they're uh, getting ready to scale that out and open, uh, six more of those stores. And I'm trying to remember, but I think they, that he even identified or speculated some of the, the potential for sites was Austin. One of them, if I'm remembering right. Yeah. And I think they had carved out another couple already in the Seattle area, which makes sense. That's what they did with the bookstores. I think they opened two in Seattle and then they went like San Diego, Chicago, New York kind of thing. Yeah. If you're really um, going to market it and try to, you know, drive traffic to it, 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 it's much harder to open multiple sites in the same city because then you can buy geographic marketing vehicles like newspaper ads and radio ads and television ads. You know, opening one store uh, each in a bunch of different cities is much more expensive for traffic generation. Cool. And, and since this is kind of a clever segue into grocery, uh, last week in our reader question or listener question uh, segment, we did uh, run out of time for one of the ones that came in through Twitter. And it was from long term listener Michelle Grant. And she asked, do you think Amazon will close fresh entirely? What do you think about the moves? And uh, so I think what she's referencing there is so Amazon did do a little bit of a layoff, a couple hundred folks. Um, and uh, I think it was the fresh team, uh, you know, because now Amazon essentially has they have a lot of irons in the fire when it comes to, to uh, a grocery. So they have Prime now. Uh, they have uh, even like the what is it warehouse or the the big box thing. Um, they have Fresh, which was the delivery. Then they have Go and and then they have Go curbside thing. So how how and then of course they have Whole Foods uh, and now they're doing same day delivery there on their own. How, how do you reconcile all those things? Yeah, so I, I do think Fresh as a standalone fulfillment center. Um, model probably does go away. So if you if you think about it like um Amazon's got full fulfillment centers that they generally ship products from or do one day deliveries with their flex drivers from. They've got these Prime Now fulfillment centers which have a, a much smaller SKU assortment um but you know really optimized for that one and two hour delivery. In the fresh cities, they have a separate fulfillment center that has a lot more cold storage uh, and accommodations for perishable. And the fresh drivers deliver out of the limited assortment of the fresh fulfillment center, which was different than the Prime Now fulfillment center, which is different than a full fulfillment center. And now they're announcing that they're going to start delivering inventory straight from Whole Foods stores. And so what I think is going to happen is that that fresh – a fulfillment center as a standalone entity goes away. Um, most of the volume for delivering perishables and groceries is going to come from the the Whole Foods store. The Whole Foods store actually has a much larger assortment than than Fresh did. Um, and I do think Amazon's continuing to build out their uh, 
fulfillment center capabilities for cold and frozen. So, you know, it wouldn't be surprised if they have cold capabilities in prime now fulfillment centers and they continue to fulfill some uh, some cold items from prime now. But I would imagine that those are mainly items uh, that are synergistic with other other types of products that people buy from prime now. So maybe you need some like cables and an emergency router for your office and you'd also buy you know a case of soda or water you know it wouldn't surprise me if they have those kind of SKUs in prime now but you know if you're going to order bananas and milk uh that's more likely going to get fulfilled from a a whole foods rather than a a standalone uh fresh depot so so i think on the show you've always talked about curbside wins delivery is kind of tougher and probably doesn't win um it sounds like you just kind of reconciled it all down to more like delivery. Do you, do you think Amazon does continue with that curbside? I think it was called Amazon Go Pickup or something, right? Uh, Amazon uh, uh, Fresh Curbside. Okay. Is it? No, uh, Fresh Pickup. Amazon Fresh, fresh Pickup. pickup. Um, right. Yeah, so there are these two Fresh Pickup uh, locations in Seattle. I, I continue to strongly believe – that the majority of digital grocery shopping is going to be pickup, right? So you're going to order your digital groceries from Walmart or Kroger um, or Amazon, and you are going to uh, drive to that store or, or a, a surrogate location for that store at a convenient time and have someone load your groceries into your trunk. And that's the economics of that are just infinitely more favorable than the economics of delivering uh, fresh. And we can get into all the, the reasons why logistics for delivering perishables are much uglier than the economics for delivering uh, uh, white goods and general merchandise. Um, there, there are niches where home delivery of fresh makes sense. And, you know, uh, rich people in New York and Chicago and California, you know, are, are certainly going to take advantage of that. Um, and so, you know, I think, all of Amazon's offerings at the moment, with the exception of those two locations, are home delivery. Um, and so, you know, I was kind of answering the fulfillment question through that lens. Uh, but I also think I'll, I'll be utterly shocked if after Amazon turns those Whole Foods into home delivery uh, venues, they don't also offer a curbside pickup option uh, for for uh, pickup at Whole Foods. And what's going to be super interesting to me when they do that is if, what and if the pricing difference is between having those groceries delivered uh, and picking them up at the store. Because at the moment, the delivery is free as long as you, you know, trigger certain thresholds. Um, and, you know, but the, the costs for delivery are much higher than the curbside pickup costs. So it seems like... Uh, you know, there, there's going to be a strong argument for there being some price savings if you're willing to pick them up. Very cool. Uh, Michelle, thanks for the question. I'm sorry we couldn't get it to it last episode, but glad we were able to pick it up, kind of rolled up inside of this Amazon Go News. Um, Jason, one thing, another thing I wanted to pick your brain on, uh, the big news kind of over the last week or so was Walmart uh, really missed their e-commerce growth goals for Q4. Uh, and so I think they came in at uh, a paltry 23%, which is kind of funny because that's not too shabby. Uh, but, you know, Wall Street was expecting 50%, uh, they had, which is 
they had done in prior quarters. And then at their analyst day, which we talked about on the show, they were kind of banging their chest and saying, hey, in 2018, we're going to get this thing cranked up to 60%. Uh, and that, the result of that, uh, you know, the, the stock had been on quite an upswing since the jet acquisition and a lot of this good e-commerce news. And it had, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it's recovered since then, but I, it had the single worst day in the history of the stock uh, from a, both a percentage and a point basis. So uh, that did not go over well with uh, the street. Then uh, there was a, a flurry of articles, you know, is Lori on his way out? What's going on? Uh, what, what's your take on what happened there? Yeah. So, I mean, just a, a brief moment of silence for all that that uh, value that was lost. Um, when they, they announced that their e-commerce grew at 23% when their industry is only growing at 16%. And oh, by the way, Traffic in our stores was up and our stores grew by 3.2%, which our store volume is way higher than the the online volume and way more profitable. So they actually like reported really good financial news um, with this this one miss about what, you know, economically is kind of an irrelevant portion of their business. And they, they got cream for it. Um, but of course, uh, you and I and our listeners know that that that, you know, in the long run, that that winning in e-commerce is, is paramount. And so I, I do think it's fair that investors are, are really nervous about that, that miss. Um, so that being said, it's, it's interesting because, you know, Walmart had these three phenomenal quarters where they went 63% growth, 60% growth, 50% growth. Um, and, you know, when they were doing those, there were a bunch of acquisitions and everyone's like, oh, the acquisitions really paid off. Um, and Walmart really pushed back on that and said, no, 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 the bulk of this growth is organic you know, the bulk, bulk of this growth isn't Jet or Bonobos or ModCloth or, you know, Moose Jar or those, those things. Um, and so now a year later when they've kind of lapped those acquisitions um, and the growth is way down, you know, people are speculating it's because the, the acquisitions are now, uh, you know, they've been in there a full year. And so the comps are against, against the business with those acquisitions. And so that hurt them. You know, Walmart came out and said they they had some logistic misses and, uh, you know, that that holiday really had a different mix and that caused them to uh, to miss some shipments and miss some opportunities. Um, but what I haven't seen talked about a lot, which to me is really the hidden story of both Walmart's growth and Walmart's miss is the last topic we just talked about, which is grocery. So what what listeners need to remember Walmart is first and foremost a grocery store. I think between 50 and 60% of their revenue is grocery. Um, and, you know, a year ago, they started rapidly rolling out buy online, pick up curbside grocery to individual Walmart stores. And so about a year ago, they announced they had their thousandth grocery pickup store. And, you know, my contention is a huge part of that e commerce growth is they went from zero groceries to you know, some grocery sales in a thousand stores. Um, and so now they've lapped those thousand stores. Those same, those thousand stores are in the comps. Um, and so now the growth, you know, doesn't look as spectacular unless you opened another thousand stores, which Walmart actually announced they were going to do. And conspicuously absent in this in these latest announcements was any indication of whether they, they hit their goal or didn't hit their goal or they were behind um, and I really think some of the, you know, I'd be interested to hear some of the, the stock analysts, you know, you know, if, if they ask those questions and if they got good answers, because to me, um, we really need to be thinking about these, these e-commerce grocery stores a little bit different than pure e-commerce. When, when 
Amazon adds a product to their e-commerce catalog. It's available in all 50 states simultaneously. Um, but grocery is a store-by-store basis. So you almost need a same-store sales number uh, for e-commerce to really see the true growth in uh, in, e- in e-commerce grocery. And so I, I like that that may be a evolution of the retail financial reporting that we we start to see. I think one other thing that caught my eye related to that miss is um, there was pr- funny to me, probably not funny to Walmart, uh, a blog on Gardner's website uh, from a guy, Bob Hitu, who who's one of the, the good retail analysts at Gardner. And he was talking about how he's seen some substantial price fluctuations at Walmart. Um, and essentially, he tells a story about how, like, for, for research, he tried to get his family to buy all their their stuff online from Walmart. They were, they are Walmart shoppers apparently, but he tried to get his wife to use walmart.com and she diligently tried and they actually failed because Walmart's online pricing was so much higher than their in-store pricing. Um, and uh, so, you know, Bob's speculation is that, uh, you know, part of, part of this miss is um, that they have this disparate pricing strategy between e-commerce and in-store um, and, you know, that he's seen a shift more recently to, to closer to universal pricing. And he thinks that might be something that Walmart's adjusting um, in response to some of their, their softer e-commerce growth. Um, and that that is potentially interesting. There is this, you know, huge, you're an everyday low price retailer. It's it's part of your whole, whole brand proposition. You, you'd expect to see the lowest price everywhere. And if prices are higher online, like, you know, that you could understand why that would alienate the core Walmart shopper. And so that that to me is a interesting part of this story that we haven't heard a lot of analysts talk about is is the pricing uh, part, because we have separately seen Walmart make some announcements um, that, you know, are kind of funny announcements to hear a retailer make, which is they're shifting focus of their online inventory to be more profitable. And they're actually asking CPGs to make more expensive bundles and more expensive products for them so they can get the AOV of online up to get profitability up. And the sort of, you know, implication in all of this is, hey, we're getting some nice e-commerce growth. E-commerce is starting to be meaningful for Walmart. But one thing that sucks about it is the economics. Um, And, you know, now Walmart's, you know, trying to shift to be more, more profitable online. And so, you know, when you talk about this growth, you know, is it is it profitable growth, and is part of the the softness in Walmart's growth because they have shifted, uh, they are trying to shift the mix to to be more profitable online. I, you know, I, I don't know, but those are going to be the interesting things to follow. Very cool. Um, one, uh, any other Walmart news you want to cover? Uh, they a couple other interesting things. They uh, they they have announced some new brands. Um, so they launched a bunch of new apparel brands, and I think they officially – I think word might have already been out, but I think they officially announced them today as well. Um, so again, props to them for getting on our editorial schedule. Um, but so these are brands like uh, Time and True, Terra and Sky, Wonder Nation, and I think and one called George – um, and you know, for those that aren't intimately familiar with Walmart's apparel, uh, they, they've had private label apparel for a long time. Like they, you know, uh, it, it, it doesn't have a particularly good reputation for style or quality. Um, and yet I think it's a pretty big seller. Um, and so these new, these new brands are like we we're seeing in the marketplace there, they, they, it seems like there's a much bigger effort for them to be real brands that are distinct and not simply private label. 
Um, and so I think like the shift is you're starting to see retailers talk about not their private label, but their owned brands. And so I think Walmart would say Bonobos and ModCloth are owned brands. And now Time and True is a owned brand for for Walmart. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see, uh, you know, if they're able to kind of move up market and get a better reputation in apparel, um, you know, uh, apparel and everyday low prices haven't historically you know, been two things you think of together. So, so I think that's working against them a little bit. Um, but they also announced a private label for mattresses that seems like it's directly competing with the Caspers of the world. And that, that brand is called, um, Allswell, I believe. Um, and, uh, so I think some of the new, new brands are interesting. They also announced a couple of, uh, redesigns. So earlier this month, they, they did a pretty substantial redesign to their mobile app. And what they did is they put a much more robust, what I call in-store mode. They, I think they call it the store assistant. And so this is the notion that if you have the Walmart app and you run it in your house, you get one experience. But if you happen to be standing in a Walmart store and you open the Walmart app, you get a very different experience that's tailored to the kinds of things you'd like to do if you're in the store. So when you do a search, it 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 does the search against that store's local inventory. They have maps in the app now for all the stores, and they help you find products. Uh, they connect you with the local customer service and the local service offerings like Walmart Pay and and MoneyGrams and all those sorts of things in the in the store. And so they they're they're making the the in store experience on the mobile app much more robust, which is interesting. And then uh, they they dramatically redesigned the home section and they made it you know uh, much richer in content and uh, you know they have some some new shopping utilities like shop for furniture by style for example and things that you know historically Walmart was a pretty straight catalog site so adding this kind of editorial element to their site was interesting and then they have teased that in the coming months we should expect to see a pretty substantial redesign of the whole Walmart.com so I'm I'm always. Uh, super interested to follow big retailers when they do design refreshes and and see what some of the new thinking might be there. Yeah, when I saw the all's well, uh, so uh, announcement, which is the mattress, it made me think, hmm, they probably went and tried to acquire Casper Purple. There's like six of these things now. I, I can't keep them all straight. Lisa, uh, there's several others. And uh, they probably didn't like the prices. And then, you know, I, the, it, it does seem like they're a dime a dozen now. So I think, you know, I imagine they're all coming out of a similar kind of a design studio and factory in China somewhere. And they just kind of said, heck, let's just do this ourselves. I've, I've almost been surprised that Amazon hasn't done one or, or maybe Amazon has and I haven't really realized it. Yeah. Um, no, it wouldn't shock me if we see that in the near future. Quick one, uh, since uh, we just talked about Casper, uh, I did notice they opened a store in New York City, which is continuing that trend we've talked a lot about on the show with these digital native brands getting to a certain scale and then having to open stores, or, or I guess they're more showroomy. So with a mattress, you could understand that where you know there's only so many people that are going to trust the in-store trial and or then home trial and the return policy. And, uh, it is, I've enjoyed, uh, seeing them at target stores and, you know, you hear so much about them. Uh, and, uh, it is nice to kind of at least get to see one, feel it, you know, lay down on it and see what it's like before you, you take that. It, to me, it's more of the time risk of, you know, investing in the thing and having to ship it back and all that. Uh, so that was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as we've talked about on the show a number of times, like, uh, Brick-and-mortar stores are a great marketing vehicle for online sales, and unlike a lot of other marketing vehicles, which are pure expense, you know, the store can often pay for itself or be profitable and drive a bunch of traffic to your e-commerce business. So, you know, op- opening showrooms, particularly in high-traffic areas like New York City, can make, make a lot of sense for a brand. 
Yeah. A um, couple quick hits. So uh, over on the pure play side, eBay has been pretty quiet on the acquisition front. And uh, also in keeping with their timing today, they announced uh, one of the first acquisitions in a while of a, another marketplace. Uh, and it's pretty interesting. So uh, eBay has a long history of not doing well in Japan. They they had their own Japanese offering uh, and then they exited Japan in 2000. They also didn't do well in China. So they really struggled with, with Asia in general. general. Uh, and then they had this partnership with Yahoo Auctions. So if you look at the the Japanese marketplace market today, uh, it's dominated by Rakuten, uh, Yahoo Auctions, and then Amazon does really well in Japan as well. Uh, and so they actually just acquired a startup called, the startup's called Geosis, and the name of the marketplace, I don't know how to say it, so I'll spell it, is Q-O-O and then one zero, I, which, you know, so I think it would be Q10.jp. Uh, um, so that's pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, I saw a rumor that they paid $700 million for that. So you have to kind of think, you know, why would you pick 2018 after you've been out of the market for 18 years? And my my reading the tea leaves on this is eBay's done a really good job on kind of cross-border trade and enabling uh, people around the world to uh, order from – order from sellers across the world and then doing some interesting things with reshipping and Google Translate and to just make the entire eBay catalog or as much of it as possible available in areas where they actually don't have a presence. So so I, I kind of imagined when I read this um, that, you know, they must see some data that shows there's there is demand for for, you know, probably cross-border trade product. And this gives them a, a platform to kind of put that on. Whereas before they're probably just doing this kind of localized, I, I kind of call it a, it's kind of a, a, you know, a hacked kind of a country page where you'll, you'll go to eBay.jp, but the listings are all coming from the U S and Europe. And then they've been Google translated and that kind of thing. So this will, you know, I, I think their interest must be that they're seeing something in the data. They do this in Russia, for example, it's one of the largest countries for them where they do this, uh, and Brazil and other countries. Um, another couple quick ones back to Omnichannel. Uh, Macy's was in the news this week because they had an awesome fourth quarter. And I hope you're seeing down, Jason, but their same store sales grew 1.4% year over year. So that was, uh, you know, cause for celebration. I think there was a uh, Wall Street expectation that they actually have negative same store sales. For the last three years, they have been contracting. So it is good to see them have an increase. It's just kind of interesting, you know, the, that Walmart gets the snot beaten out of them for, for 23% growth in e-commerce. Macy's, I didn't see where they split it out. Um, but, you know, they grew 1.4%. And it's kind of like, you know, they're through the woods and everything's great. Um, so, you know, that that is still growing shorter or smaller than overall retail, which I believe was in the high 3% um, for, for offline. Uh, so that was interesting. Um, you know, one of the other kind of couple of things I picked out of that announcement, uh, they now say they have a third of their SKUs are what they call exclusive, which to me means more like private label, or if they have worked with a brand, it's only available at Macy's. Um, and that seems to be doing well, which is uh, one of the things you and I always tell retailers to, to focus on. Um, and then they, they acquired a, um, uh, a, a beauty product called Blue Mercury. It, it, I, you know, I think it kind of competes with the Sephora kind of a thing. Um, and I'm not an expert on this. And it's evidently doing really, really well. And, you know, it is exclusive to them. And I think they're starting to really kind of uh, push that pretty hard. Um, and then the last one I saw that was pretty interesting kind of in the financial news, uh, there's been a lot of rumors of Nordstrom's going private. And it looks like, you know, there's there's all these rumors that that deal is getting done. The stock reacted to it. So, uh, and I noticed that uh, 
Jason has added them to Code Commerce, which will be his little kind of sideshow that he does over at Shop Talk. He added one of the Nordstroms to that. So it'll be interesting. You know, you could imagine um, if there's something going on, that's all Jason's going to ask about. So you can imagine hope, you know, maybe a deal will be done by late March or that, you know, that they're kind of have some timing set up that they can talk about it then or something. Uh, I may be reading too much into that, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah, no, for sure, because the Nordstroms don't do a ton of publicity. So for uh, I think it's Eric Nordstrom that's going to the Rico dinner, um, and it it'll be interesting to hear what he has to say. And I I'm sure you're right that that uh, he he will certainly get some questions about the the going private. I would do just just one slight tweak on the Macy's. So Blue Mercury is a cosmetics company. They're a brand that Macy's bought and and is killing it. Uh, uh, luxury cosmetics in general are doing really well. It's one of the fast growing categories. And so like Ulta and Sephora, these two standalone cosmetics retailers are, are growing really fast, like, you know, doing much better than, than retail in general. Uh, uh, for, for all of our, our cosmetic savvy listeners, I'll point out that Sephora is a retailer that carries a bunch of brands, including some private label. So they're probably not the most direct competitor with blue mercury, but you know, you could think of like, uh, uh, Revlon or L'Oreal or, or those those kind of brands is competing with Blue Mercury, but but definitely the analysts uh, have talked about Blue Mercury being one of the the crown jewels and one of the great assets assets that Macy's has had. Uh, so do you feel more more cosmetic aware now, Scott? Um, Ulta carries mostly their own stuff, right? Uh, well, no. So they both carry a bunch of national brands. They both have their own stuff, um, but the 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 real innovation here is like before Sephora, uh, if you were uh, 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 interested in shopping for cosmetics, you probably went to a department store when you were a young girl and you became a certain age. Your mom probably took you to a department store to get your first cosmetics and all the cosmetics were shop and shop. So you had to no, uh, first and foremost pick a brand with your feet. So you walked to the Mac counter or you you walked to the repair counter or whatever whatever cosmetics you had an affinity for and you shopped by brand. And so Sephora had this sort of game-changing notion that like, hey, people don't want to shop by brand necessarily. They want to shop by use case. So let's put all the foundations here from all the brands and let's put all the moisturizers over here from all the brands. Um, and that that concept played really well with consumers and and triggered Sephora on this rapid growth. Um, and Ulta is a more recent competitor that has kind of followed in in Sephora's footsteps and done a really good job of adding professional services to the store and a salon and things like that. So that now you really have the whole cosmetics history. Cool. We'll have to, I was thinking we should do a deep dive, but boom, you just did it right in the middle of the news. Awesome. Yeah. It's a deep dive delicious nugget inside of some e-commerce news exactly um uh, <laughs> i just just wanted to establish my quals as knowing more about cosmetics than any dude should know you i definitely uh bow to you i appreciate it uh so going going back to omni channel there was also some, a few uh interesting news snippets about target so um one that caught my eye because it it uh validated a, a smart aleck opinion i had uh you know a couple months ago target acquired this company called shipped and shipped as a uh, a third party uh, delivery service that would deliver um, purchases from a variety of stores to a consumer's home, and there um, you pay an annual fee of like ninety nine dollars, and then you get free de- home delivery, you know, uh, over some purchase threshold like thirty five bucks or something. So Target bought them, and at the time I was like, hey, that may be a good acquisition. That may get Target some good capability for home delivery that they want, uh, but. 
they're likely to have overpaid because shipped was this two-sided marketplace where you know they tried to acquire customers that were customers of shipped not target and they pay a hundred dollars to ship to be a member um and the reason that they would get a bunch of customers is the the utility those customers get is they get free home delivery from a bunch of retailers so shipped had to a- appeal to a bunch of retailers and they had to appeal to a bunch of consumers and when one retailer buys them suddenly it's much less appealing for for ship to work with all these other retailers and that you know it 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 has this negative cascade effect on the whole two-sided marketplace model um and at the time uh, of the announcement they're like no 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 we're going to continue to run it as a standalone en- entity and we're going to continue to um to try to support all those retailers uh, so, you know, interesting side note, 60 days later, uh, Shipt is no longer delivering uh, uh, goods from Walmart. So uh, you you may have paid your $99 under the belief that you could get free home delivery from Sam's Club and uh, Shipt has pulled that, that rug out from or Target has pulled that rug out from under the Shipt customers, uh, you know, which in my mind means Shipt is at the end of the day going to end up being a convenient delivery tool for Target purchases, which which may be super you know useful, but it's it's a different model than the original ship model. So I, I found that you know interesting or self validating. It made me feel good about myself. Um, and then there was, I, there was kind of an interesting interview that we saw with uh, Brian Cornell, the CEO of Target. I think he was on Squawk Box, and uh, you know he's making the point about um, the value of Target stores and how you know they're very successfully shipping from stores and they're making major investment in remodeling stores and how how important stores are to the whole mix. All stuff that I wholeheartedly agree with and I'm glad to see Target doing and emphasizing. Um, but the marquee quote out of this whole thing, you know, that kind of got the headline was uh, Brian Cornell says e-commerce is in everything. Most U.S. sales still happen in stores. Um, and you know, I have to be honest, I don't love quotes like that because in my mind you know, half of all target sales are digitally influenced and, you know, deciding that a sale is a store sale or an online sale at this point is kind of silly. They're, they're 70% of all their online orders. They ship from the stores. Now they have this ship thing to deliver from, from the stores. Like, you know, I don't think Brian uh, should be talking about his e-commerce sales versus his U S sales. And the, my sort of smart metaphor is, it's like the old retail guy saying the only profitable part of our store is the POS because that's where all the sales are driven and the shelves don't drive any sales. So they're less valuable. We should not invest in the shelves. Obviously, like it doesn't matter where the sale is consummated. Like the whole customer experience is super important. <laughs> I feel like there was a joke in there, but I didn't get it. Some kind of old school retail joke. <laughs> yeah, I'll put the laugh track in so people will think that everyone else got it, even if you didn't. But we are up on time, uh, Scott, because I, I know we were trying to make uh, the news episodes a bit shorter as a as an amenity to our listeners. Uh, I do want to remind everyone again, uh, it would be totally fun to see some of you in Chicago at the Path to Purchase Summit um, Monday, March 12th. Uh, Scott is going to be part of a great track on Marketplace and Amazon selling, and I, I'm going to be uh, uh, in the audience learning from that one. Um, and we'll be podcasting some live shows from there. So uh, hope to see some of you then. Uh, as always, love to continue the the conversation on Facebook. So if you if you have any questions uh, or comments about this episode or want to call out some of the many things Scott and I got wrong, feel free to jump on Facebook and uh, we'll keep the conversation going. And as always, if you loved the show, we would greatly appreciate that five-star review on iTunes. So this would be a great week 
to finally jump on the website, uh, go go find our show. All you have to do is type e-commerce into iTunes. We're the first one that'll show up. Uh, click on that five star review, and uh, we will be forever indebted to you. Yeah, thanks for joining us, everyone. And uh, also, when you're on iTunes, hit the subscribe button. A lot of people just download each episode, which is fine. But if you subscribe, it also helps us on the rankings, and we appreciate that. Absolutely. So until next time, happy e-commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.